Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the 307 RPG Podcast. My name is Patrick and I'm your host today. In this episode, I am joined by a special guest, Neil Raymond Price. Neil is joining us today to discuss Scion Demigod 2nd Edition, which some of you may know is currently on Kickstarter. Of course, a link to that is in the show notes. Neil has been a tabletop RPG and fiction writer for more than a decade. In that time, he has worked for dozens of companies, including White Wolf, Onyx Path, Green Ronin, Fantasy Flight, and Paizo. Currently, he is developing a new light version of Exalted 3rd Edition with two co-developers. He is also the lead developer of Scion 2nd Edition. Neil currently resides in Washington, D.C. with his girlfriend and his cat. Neil, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I had pancakes for breakfast, so I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> it's a little early here in Wyoming, so I haven't had a chance to have breakfast yet, but pancakes do sound delicious. With blueberries. Oh, that makes it even better. <laughs> so obviously we, we have you on the show today to talk about Scion Demigod, which is currently on Kickstarter, as our, as our listeners know. But before we get into Scion, I would like to dive a little bit into you and your background and, and find out how long you've been playing RPGs. Sure. I've been um, playing RPGs for more than 20 years now. I, uh, I actually started around 1999, 2000 or so at Boy Scout Camp. It was my first introduction to play Battletech and uh, D6 Star Wars. And I didn't, still didn't really have a very good grasp on what role-playing was until I ran into the Vampire the Masquerade Redemption video game about a year or so later. And I was just intrigued by the world. I was intrigued by all these characters, and I desperately wanted to know more about it. And when I found out it was a role-playing game, I was like, "Well, okay, I've kind of, I kind of understand what these things are." And I went to my friendly local gaming store, and I tried to get a copy of Vampire. And they did not have Vampire, but they did have an older copy of Wraith, which I picked up and sort of blew my fragile little mind. <laughs> Wraith will do that to you. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, I, I gamed um, with a local group for many, many years. We actually still game fairly regularly, thanks to uh, Discord, you know, previously Skype. And um, despite the fact that we are now all over the country, we still get together. So it's, it's nice to have such a long running group. Yeah, that's awesome. I know a lot of people would be very envious of that. <laughs> so... Um, so you've been playing for, for more than 20 years. What made you decide you wanted to start writing RPGs? You know, it was honestly uh, a bit of a lark. Um, my Every milestone and every really big decision in my life has come from watching someone else not do it as well and thinking, I can do a better job than that person, and then, and then doing it. Um, not to say that... <laughs> Uh, there were a lot of bad writers out there. Um, there were some very, very excellent writing in older RPGs that I desperately love. And now that I'm older and wiser, I can say that you know all, all of the successes that we have now, I think role-playing games are in a golden age, kind of, and I think uh, some of the best writing and design is being done in them that's ever been done, but you have to realize that it's an iterative process. And without those earlier iterations, you don't get what you have today. And what's going to come tomorrow is going to be better than what's today. So we're only standing as tall as we are because we're standing on the shoulders of giants. But that's, re 
really interesting. Yeah. I want to touch on that real quick, though, because I, I think that I haven't heard anybody say that they think that we're in a golden age of role playing games. Um, what do you think has has made it so where what we do have today is so vastly different than what we had before? Uh, I think the uh, prevalence of venues like Drive Through RPG and Ichio and um, the sheer popularity of streaming has uh, gotten a lot of uh, a lot of folks in a bigger audience simply aware of what role playing is and what it can be. Um, Dungeons and Dragons obviously sort of dominates the conversation, and I know that a lot of folks in the indie industry are very frustrated by that fact. But to me, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, and I, I know some That's people fair. would disagree with me when I say that, but. Um, I, I have seen more people more interested in role-playing games than ever before. And one of my better con experiences of the last several years was going to PAX Unplugged uh, a few years in a row. And you had a lot of people there who were coming from the Penny Arcade groups, who were coming from video games, who were coming from simply watching streaming and Critical Role and D&D. And they would... Uh, they 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 would come and they'd be like, well, I know what D and D is, but what what are all these other things? And they would leave with a stack of Onyx Path and Green Ronin and um, Hunters Entertainment and all sorts of smaller indie studios books in their hands. And um, I mean, to me, that 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 that's the goal. That's that's perfect. I, I would completely agree. In fact, one of the things that I'm constantly seeing on our show is that there are so many amazing games out there. You just got to get out and find them. Absolutely. And to that, you know, I don't mind. I don't mind Dungeons and Dragons being a gateway drug in that in that sense. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so going back to you getting into writing, what were some of the challenges that you faced while getting into it? Part of it was a uh, struggle with imposter syndrome and, uh, you know, just, you know, trying to decide whether I was actually good enough to do it. And it's, you know, it, it's not rocket surgery. And um, having talked to several rocket scientists and surgeons, I found that surgery and rocket science are not rocket surgery either. Um, really? You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> now, struggling with imposter syndrome was a big thing. Like, am I, am I good enough to be doing this? Am I talented enough to be doing this. And all I can say to anyone listening is that if you are, are good enough to, to think critically about a piece and you're good enough to be able to put those words down as a craft, um, then you're, you're good enough to do this. You're good enough to do any kind of writing. It is a craft and there are craftspeople of varying degrees of skill and varying degrees of talent. And that's okay because those two things aren't the same. And you know you can have an enormous amount of talent and not be as good of a writer as someone who's very, very skilled. And when I call it a craft, I do definitely mean it's a craft. Getting into that mindset of treating it as something that I really needed to work at every day and something that I needed to um, regularly do and make a part of my life and make a part of my schedule and produce word count even when I just didn't feel like it was critical. It's it, it's something it's it's a job and you have to get up and you have to do it. And I like that you mentioned imposter syndrome because that's something that personally I deal with quite regularly. And and for those of you who don't know that are listening to this, imposter syndrome is the idea that when you're doing something that you're a fraud, that you you don't have the talent to be there, that but somehow you're there. And it, it really is this strange phenomenon that people go through, like Neil just said. And I know I've personally dealt with it, and I, th I thought that was fascinating that you mentioned that, Neil. It's something that. Virtually everyone in um, 
very many different uh, fields have experienced. Um, and many of the most famous people in the world have done it. Neil Gaiman has a really fascinating story of imposter syndrome where and I'm going to paraphrase it, uh, but he went to a party and he felt, you know, not as tall as a lot of the, the other authors there. And he felt very, he, he didn't feel like he deserved to be there. He felt like he was a fraud compared to them. And he met another guy, uh, another Neil, who was at the party and confessed to him, um, you know, I really don't feel like I deserve to be here. All of these people have done great things and used their minds. And I just pushed a bunch of buttons and went where they told me to. And Neil Gaiman was like, but you're Neil Armstrong. Like, you, oh you were my. the first man on the moon. And so he, he thinks to himself, like, if, well, if Neil Armstrong can feel imposter syndrome, maybe it's okay for me to feel that too. That's I had never heard that story. That's neat. Okay, so let's get back to <laughs> RPGs and Scion itself. Um, so w- tell us because our, our podcast does focus a lot on the world of darkness and Dungeons and Dragons, and and neither myself nor my co-host Nolan have played Scion. I own the first two books, but we haven't actually played it. So can you tell us what is Scion? Okay, so Scion. Uh, I'll start with the meta of what Scion is, and then I will start with. Um the in-game of what Scion is. So Scion as a game was first created in 2007 by White Wolf. Um, It was not part of what was then called the New World of Darkness, and it's now called the Chronicles of Darkness. And it was not meant to be a um, subsidiary series the way that Orpheus was to the older World of Darkness, and which is now just the World of Darkness, because branding is weird. Scion was meant to be its own unique thing and its own its own limited series of three core books, Hero, Demigod, and God, describing the three levels of power. And the core concept of Scion is that the ancient powers in the world, the gods, never fully went away. They wander our roads and our cities, mingling with the teeming masses of humanity. And you're one of their children. You're, you're born to the magic of yesterday and the promise of tomorrow. And the general impetus for this new age of heroes is that the gods' ancient enemies, the titans, the, the generation of gods that came before the gods, um, are, were fought a mighty war against the gods in the past, the Titanomachy, and lost. And the gods locked them away. And now, for whatever reason, they are breaking loose. And the world is entering an age of upheaval, and now's the time for heroes. So um, Scion had several pantheons and had several gods in there that you could be literal children of. And it was such a a heady and unique idea that it got a lot of traction and it got more books than the original three that were slated for it because it was so popular. And when Onyx Path split off from uh, CCP and White Wolf, I, I shouldn't say that they split off. Um, Rich Thomas uh, was a longtime White Wolfer from the early days, from from the from the early 1990s, and he was a creative director through a lot of the New World of Darkness era of CCP. And then he, uh, when CCP decided to stop publishing tabletop RPGs, and that. Uh, Rich Thomas thought that there was still a bit of a market for it, so he formed Onyx Path Publishing and licensed the Chronicles of Darkness and World of Darkness properties from CCP to continue making TTRPG 
products, but he bought uh, Scion and the Trinity Continuum outright. And in 2012, they announced that they were going to do a new edition of Scion. What was it about the game that drew you to it? I really loved the idea of mythology. I really loved the idea of gods doing incredible things and heroes doing huge things. So you have to understand that my my real one true RPG love is Exalted. Is there I, is there a tie in between Exalted and Scion? Yes, but it is very tenuous. I, I could get a little bit into the 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 nuts and bolts of it, but I I think I'm not going to shock anyone by saying that a early pitch and an early iteration of Scion was Exalted Modern. And Scion was eventually what Scion itself, the concept of Scion was supposed to use its own kind of proprietary system. And I believe that those two pitches were merged into one another. So Scion First Edition uses the variant of the storytelling system that is present in Exalted Second Edition in a slightly more simplified form. Again, going back to what was it that pulled you in? I really loved the idea that you could play heroes who were extraordinarily powerful. You weren't starting level characters to continue the D&D the, the, the D the D &D comparison. You started maybe 5th level, 10th level, even sometimes 15th level or so of that equivalent. You could work miracles. You could work huge feats that were incredible. And you were an object of you were an object of celebrity you were an object of worship so the game was interesting from that angle as well and it was just it was something that was unique and it was something that i'd never seen before and it's very interesting to me who thinks a lot about i think a lot about family narratives what i'm writing i think a lot about the context in which someone's experiencing an event and how the way they were raised shapes that and the word scion um, connotates uh, you, that you are an offshoot of something larger, that, you, that, that something, something much bigger than you has produced you. And there's a, a family tale in there as well, and a, a, a lot of pathos in the idea of struggling against your parents or struggling against your, your very fractitious family. I mean, what, what does it feel like to be you know, a, a child of one of the gods and one of the gods from mythology is your aunt or uncle. And that's, that. it just so intrigues me and I really like it. And I think, thought there was so much potential and pathos in that idea. Neil, I've done a little bit of reading into Scion and just trying to, you know, wrap my head around what the game is. Because again, it's not a game, there's so many freaking games out there that are amazing that we just don't have enough time to play them all. With Scion, one of the things that I think is fascinating is the fact that it pulls from real world pantheons. And I have to ask, with, with Demigod, is there any additional pantheons added to the book? Yes, there are five different pantheons added to the book. You have the Apu of the Inca, the Anunya of the ancient Mesopotamians, the Atua of the Polynesian peoples. Now, that was very interesting because we did do a lot of research into that, and we did have a couple of Polynesian consultants. And we chose specifically to focus that pantheon much more on the Maori presentation, but we also brought in a little bit about the native Hawaiian presentation of it. Polynesian mythology is very interesting because like a lot of these mythologies, um, you have the different gods and you, you might have the same gods, but they might be different from myth to myth and culture to culture. The, the religious and the um, mythology 
of Hawaii is not the same as it is of the, the Maori in New Zealand, um, even though they are, quote unquote, the same gods. Um, continuing on, we also have the, uh, the Tengri of the Mongolian people, uh, including Genghis Khan, who is often revered. We have the Bogovoy of the Slavic peoples. And that's it. Those are, those are the, the new five in there. What was it like researching some of these pantheons? Hard. Um, I, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, I, I have to give full props to the talented uh, number of writers that I picked up. I certainly could not keep all of this straight. They are, you know, they, 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 they really do a master class at this sort of thing. Um, I do ask that everyone sort of... Uh, cite their sources at least if to me then you know it, to me if to no one else but then you get you run into things like the bogavoy who there are really not a lot of surviving slavic myths that are out there there's a lot of patent falsehoods there's a lot of myths that have been interpreted through a christian lens because of the the christianization of the slavic peoples and you know, the only people who thought to wrote these things down were Christian monks. And for every cool word of it, there's another word of, but this is actually stupid because they're denying the truth of Christ and that sort of thing. And it's just, it's just an attitude and a cultural lens that is foreign from the people who conceived it. Um, so there's, there's inherent bias in there. So you, and, you mentioned you mentioned that you require them to have sources. Is is that something, especially in this day and age, where it seems like everything gets canceled for every little thing that is wrong? Is that something that you guys go back and actually dig into and research and and verify? So it's uh, I'd be lying if I said that um, protection against that sort of thing wasn't a factor in what what we consider there. But the primary idea is that we don't necessarily want full one hundred percent accuracy to the myths. But what we want is fidelity, and especially cultural fidelity, especially fidelity to the cultures and the religions that are still extant today. Now, one of the things I like to say is that, you know, the, the, the Maui of the Atua in Sion is not the real Maui, or the Odin of Sion is not the real Odin. And they, they, are, they are, are fictionalized presentations of them that are rooted a lot in real mythology and rooted a lot in as many stories as we can pull. But ultimately we need to decide on a fairly unified presentation. And then we need to decide on a way to implement that and show it off in the game itself. So there's a layer of fictionality that overpins even the real world religions. For example, the uh, many of the Hindu and Vedic gods um, are part of the, the the Deva pantheon of the of of Sion hero, and you know there's a billion there's literally a billion Hindus out there. I'm not I'm not making that number up, um, and they all have very very different ways of interpreting Hinduisms, and they all have a different way of interpreting their own gods, and um, there are big strains of Hinduism that um, you know. That, that 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 don't acknowledge a lot of the Vedic gods, and there are big strains of it that that really play up the Vedic entities a lot in there. So deciding on what to use is also very important, especially if you're conceiving of these gods as an active force in the world. It seems like a lot of 
careful structuring of how your team is writing this book. How long did it take to develop this? Scion Demigod has been in development for more than a year. There's a lot of checking. There's a lot of back and forth. And, you know, to be frank, like a lot of there's a there's a reason I don't develop a lot of the other Scion books. I'm the lead developer of Scion. I'm not the sole developer of Scion. And this isn't my only job. So it takes a lot of effort and a lot of moving parts coming into play that need to be carefully scrutinized and polished and moved around. Um, so it's it's a lot of work. And unfortunately, the way a lot of books work is the developer is kind of the bottleneck. So you slow everything down. <laughs> yes. I I am the reason these things are so delayed. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Um, you mentioned that you're the lead developer for Scion. When did that happen? When did you become the lead developer for Scion, and why? So in 2012, the new edition was announced, and uh, a good friend of mine, Joseph Carricker, uh, who's a big developer at Green Ronin, especially with Blue Rose, and who just is publishing his own fiction called Sacred Band, which is about a group of gay and uh, trans superheroes um, after the, the sacred band of Thebes. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool. I recommend anyone listening to it, check it out. Um, but uh, Joseph was kind of uh, asked by Richard Thomas to be um, the developer of Science Second Edition. And, um, you know, there, 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 there were some production delays and there was. Um, just a lot of real life stuff and Joseph's fiction career was really taking off and he really wanted to focus on that. And he eventually said, you know, I, I, I'd like to pass the reins over to Neil. And um, I took over and my mandate was not just to make a Scion second edition, but also to create a game system um, that could be used for Scion, but also for Trinity and also as a basic structure to put a lot of other Onyx Path games on. And uh, that was eventually that eventually became the Story Path system, um, which has its roots in storyteller and storytelling, but is its own animal. It takes a lot of meta mechanics and makes them explicit, and it um, moves away from the rigid, diegetic focus that a lot of storyteller and storytelling games have. Now, I know that the story path system, we see a lot of games from Onyx Path, like uh, Chronicles of Darkness. Um, I know they came from Beneath the Sea. I, I'm assuming they came from Beyond the Grave. All those games are on that system, but yet the original World of Darkness games, and I'm assuming this is because they are a White Wolf IP or CCP IP, are not. Is that correct? So um, I'm sure you know this, but I, I'm just going to say it for the benefit of your listeners, what the different types of systems are. So the original... World of Darkness games, uh, back in the day before there was a new World of Darkness, ran on a system called Storyteller, and everyone's pretty familiar with it. Now, there were a lot of variants. There was the there was the Exalted variant, and then you had the variant that stemmed off into Trinity and then Aberrant, and a lot of those system improvements that were featured in Trinity got baked back into the revised era of games and those series of mechanics. Um, but when they decided to create the New World of Darkness, they decided to make a, a, a kind of a sharp break with that and do a system with a different sense of sensibilities. And that's called the storytelling system. And that is, it, it's different in a lot of ways that are subtle. Um, but if you really are a systems geek, you'll, you'll really get into them. And the second editions of those games 
took even even more from that. Um, and then, of course, you have the exalted variant of Storyteller still doing its own thing into third edition. And then you have the second editions of the storytelling system with the Chronicles of Darkness. And then you have V5, which is still original storyteller, but takes a lot of systemic info, um, a lot of systemic and a lot of setting stuff from Vampire the Requiem second edition. <clears throat> so you have stuff in storyteller that's now being imported from storytelling uh, on a systemic level. And so it's, it, it is one big convoluted mess. And, you know, if you're confused out there, listeners, I don't blame you. It, it, there's a lot there. Um, Story Path was really more meant to create uh, a new type of this, a cousin game rather than a, a, a sister game, the way Storyteller and Storytelling was. And I did that because Storyteller and Storytelling both have a very rigid focus on what I call diegetic mechanics, which is if you look at your character sheet in a Storyteller game, there is nothing on your character sheet that represents something outside your character. Um, you know, yes, you could make an argument that that backgrounds and stuff do, but those are all how they relate to your character. You can describe your character's entire experience with the system from that sheet, uh, but there's no real room for like meta mechanics. There's nothing. There's nothing like the fate point economy you'll see in a fate game, um, and that makes things a little straitjacketed because when you're spending willpower in a game, you're actually spending an in-game resource. So one of the things I want to do was bring in a lot of more story mechanics and a lot of uh, more meta mechanics from indie RPGs and from other other types of RPGs uh, and and bake them into the core assumptions of storyteller and address the fact that storyteller and storytelling, even the exalted variants of it, are still fundamentally based around a very fragile person and the concept that violence can do an enormous amount of damage to you and that the games are built around a horror mindset. Um, so they're not built with action adventure in mind. And every attempt to do those kind of action adventure games has been swimming against the current. So I wanted to build a game and a game system that uh, had the action adventure idea baked into it from the start. See, now that I didn't know. <laughs> So I was educated today. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> so going back to the book, um, what were some of the challenges that were faced for this book? Oh, geez. Um, well, Demigod was a lot easier of a lift than Origin and Hero were. Origin and Hero, we were developing two different, we were developing two core books in tandem. And we were doing it on the, the sort of new World of Darkness model rather than the Chronicles of Darkness or the traditional uh, old World of Darkness model. And by that, I mean we have a core book called Origin. And then we had the book where most of the meat of your cool experiences are going to be, Hero. And I, I think there's a lot of upsides to this kind of arrangement in that you can sometimes make a different game entirely if you wanted to out of it origin presents the world as very mysterious but also kind of touched by by the divine and it's much more of a gritty uh, did you see the netflix movie bright with will smith i love where, that movie yeah so origin is almost like a bright level type thing where the the divine and um creatures of myth are just sort of there 
and just sort of in the world, but you know, you you don't have any supernatural powers. You're just sort of it's everything sort of street level, as it were. Um, whereas hero, you actually get more of the miracles. You you are one of the children of the gods. You are this and that. So origin gave us the opportunity to really get dig into a little bit of that of that gritty kind of level of world that hero is already beyond a, a character generation. So, but to answer your question, which I realized I didn't do, what made it really difficult to work on? What were some of the difficulties? Um, the research is a huge part of that. Uh, the pantheons are the biggest part of what, of the work that goes into this. And they're the biggest delay on any project because we, you know, we, we make a lot of effort to get resources for what we're doing. We make a lot of effort to reach out to concerned groups that uh, deal with these sorts of things. We get a lot of beta readers. We get a lot of uh, fact checkers. And then we have to decide, like, what, who do we listen to, especially if two different beta readers are telling us two different things. Um, and then we have to decide, well, what makes for the better story? And should we ignore that? Because, you know, an awful lot of myths and legends were done in a different time in a different value system. And nobody really wants to hear about the sexual assault that's at the heart of a bunch of myths, uh, especially in Greek myths, especially in, you know, uh, a, a lot of other myths around the world. So the fact is we're, we're doing these games and they have to be, they're, they're, they're games in the modern day, but they're also modern versions of these myths. So we are writing for people now and for people here. And making that adjustment from these ancient sources is, it's a big cognitive load. Yeah, I gotta imagine it is. It, how do you make that distinction when you have two beta readers tell you, hey, this is this way and this one's saying, no, it's this way. What, I mean, what is the, what is the definitive, okay, this is what we're gonna go with? I can only speak for my experiences as a white guy. I, you know, for, for those listening, I am um, white, I'm heterosexual, I'm a Christian, actually. I, I, I cannot fairly claim any lack of privilege in any area. I have ADHD. Maybe that's, maybe that's something, I, I guess I'm neuroatypical. But even there, I've never really thought of myself as that. So I, I can't really claim any kind of sense of community with a marginalized population. Um, I, I would agree. I'm the same way. Yeah. So I, you have to remember, um, especially interacting with marginalized folks, that they are not monoliths, and no one person speaks for an entire community. And so, the way I try to deal with that is I try to deal with with contradicting sources of information. Is I try to reach out and I try to talk to as many of the people that I know who are, who are of that marginalization as I possibly can. And, you know, even that's fraught with a bit of danger because you don't want to traumatize someone or you don't want to, you know, dump a lot of your load on them. So cultivating those kinds of relationships, cultivating those kind of honest ideas and being willing to do the research for yourself. If two different people are telling you the same thing, determining, well, you know, what, what, what is the most, most correct or least offensive way we can possibly phrase this? going to be and it's it's hard it's real hard and a I lot of times there's, there's 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 no easy or even right answer have you ever had a situation where you're like okay this is what we're going to go with but be prepared for blowback um so 
Yeah, at the heart of a lot of Algonquian and Ojibwe myths, um, the the there a lot of their creation story and the creation of of the, the greatest of the Manitou is born out of an idea of sexual assault. Uh, they're one of the one of their titans essentially assaulted and repeatedly assaults um, one one of the goddesses, and that's what creates the the brothers who sort of inhabit the rest of the pantheon. So I was concerned about that, but I ultimately decided that fidelity was more important and that um, placing an emphasis on uh, a survivor mentality of sexual assault and placing more of an emphasis on the positive things that even someone who comes out of a bad experience can do. Um, not not the sexual assaulter. Let me let me hasten to say that I meant that if someone, for example, is the child of a sexual assault, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that their entire life has to be uh, one of anguish and pain. So I was I was intrigued by that, and that's sort of the the degree that we took. Um, we also made a decision to, for example, in the the Bogovoy, because of the heavy Christianization of a lot of the myths and the legends. I made a conscious decision to incorporate some of those analogies, even though they weren't perhaps completely true. For example, um, if, if you've seen American Gods, you know that uh, there's the sort of dark Slavic god Chernobog, uh, whose, whose name literally means black god. And he's, he's sort of vaguely evil and vaguely trickstery and, and vaguely violent. And he has a quote-unquote good counterpart named uh, Belobog, or white god. And as near as a lot of scholars can determine, Balabog didn't actually exist. He was, an, he was a creation of early scholars and creation of people researching these things because they saw a lot of the black-white duality in a lot of the Slavic myths. And they're like, well, that must apply to this guy as well. And it probably didn't. But since we incorporate a lot of that fictionalized mythology into what we're doing, we decided to kind of go with that and run with it. And we thought that this was, this was rather than a murky picture of what might have been or going with the current Slavic reconstructionist faith, because that's also fraught with a lot of issues as well. Um, we decided to create our own fictionalized version of it that was based on some of this earlier scholarship. So you'll see Balabog in there. You'll see Radagast in there. And we, we acknowledge that they probably didn't exist. But we also acknowledge that in Scion, they do. I'm glad that you mentioned American Gods, because um, this whole time, that's that's what I've been thinking about. Um, for those of you who haven't read or read the book or seen the the uh, H or Star Show, uh, American Gods, I highly recommend. Well, I highly recommend reading the book because the book is just fantastic. American Gods was a, the, the single biggest inspiration for Scion First Edition. Period. Um, it I was not. The, yeah. It it was not the biggest inspiration for Scion Second Edition, but. Uh, it was still an inspiration and was still on the, the required reading list. Um, the chief inspiration for Scion Second Edition was the comic series The Wicked and the Divine by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. The Wicked and the Divine? Yeah, The Wicked plus the Divine. Is, 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 it's a plus sign. It posits a world where every 92 years, a series of 13 gods are reincarnated in the modern world. And for two years, they live like beyond A-list celebrities. They are they are they are living deities. They work miracles. They they attract followers. And then after two years, they die. And it's 
a meta commentary on the fleeting nature of celebrity. It's a meta commentary on a lot of things and um, the sacrifices people make to to essentially live large. And you know, if you had to ascribe a single pithy saying to the the moral of the story, it's the candle that burns twice as bright burns twice as fast, right? Sure. So, but the idea that these 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 deities were just sort of living openly and openly doing things was a huge kind of a revelation to the, my way of thinking. And the idea that you'd have like entire conventions that are based around, um, you know, uh, worship of Amaterasu, or that you'd have, you know, Lucifer breaking out of jail, actual Lucifer. And so that, it was really intriguing to me. And uh, there's even a lot of meta commentary in the series because Amaterasu is actually reincarnated as a white woman. And um, she gets called out as problematic a lot, especially by the Asian characters, who is like, why, like, why, why is Amaterasu a white woman? Why? So it's, it's a really fascinating series. It's, it's full of action. It's full of, of myth. It's full of really great character stories. It's full of a lot of queer characters and a lot of marginalized characters. So I highly recommend it. It was the chief inspiration for Silent Second Edition. Cool. I will absolutely be checking that one out. So we, we discussed um, what the new pantheons are going to be in the book. What else, what other new things does this book bring to Scion? The idea of Demigod in first edition, I liked it. Uh, don't get me wrong. And I am I am not at all bashing the authors of Scion first edition, but in a lot of ways, Demigod just sort of felt like a step up rather than a different level, if you know what I mean. It, it, a lot of the powers in there were just simply hero powers, but bigger, or hero powers, but with more numbers, or you get you get more numbers to your role now instead of feeling substantially different. And it, it, it was often at odds with a lot of the flavor text that talked about you're on a different level now and you, you understand divinity much, much more. And so what I wanted to do was make it a much more transcendental experience and a much more focused and personal experience, even as you are becoming a more widely recognized figure in the world. So what does Demigod bring to the table? First off, the, the powers are, are both more, more subtle and more casual. We have a system in there called Dominion Boons that have casual miracles as part of them. That um, you know, by being a god of fire, you make everything around you more flammable. You make people more prone to inspiration. You make you make uh, tempers flare much more easily because those are all literal or metaphorical expressions of fire, and you you literally are fire. Um, you you are metaphysically one with the concept of fire. So that's a big part of what we wanted to do, but we also wanted to get rid of the plateau. And what I mean by that is that in first edition, hero and demigod were levels that you could kind of plateau at. You could kind of go there and you could stop, you could, you could just sort of stop adventuring and sort of be there. And I didn't really want to have that for Scion because I wanted to express a lot of what you're giving up in, in order to become a demigod and what you're giving up to become closer to the divine. You have to give up your mortality, of course, because that you know, immortality, immortality cannot coexist. And so you can plateau at the hero level. There, there's nothing that forces you to become a demigod. There's no growth of power that inevitably tips the scales over. Um, you, you can live out a happy life in hero. Um, and you probably won't die uh, in your bed surrounded by grandchildren, but there's not, 
you know, you, you, there's a good chance that you can do that too. Uh, more likely, you'll be killed in some epic battle because um, your life will perpetually be interesting even into old age, and conflict will will find a way to seek out a scion. But demigod is something fundamentally different. Um, no, no demigod dies in bed after a long life. It by becoming a demigod, you are essentially getting to a level where you declare to fate itself and the entire world. Um, I'm going to become a god or die trying. And it's an expression of a desire for immortality. And it's an expression of a desire to make your mark on the world such that it will never be forgotten. You know, stories of Hercules or Maui are thousands of years old, but we still talk about them now. Hercules is still a byword for strength. Um, you know, it, we talk about the 12 labors of Hercules. Those are thousands of years old stories in a world where history is forgotten after maybe a few hundred. So that's, that's power. That's immortality. And so what did it take to make that kind of mark on the world and make that kind of mark on a culture such that you will perpetuate for all time? And if you want that, then you, then you say, yes, I want to be a demigod. And yes, I want to be a god. So demigod is more of a liminal phase between her heroism, where you are much more mortal than god, and god, where there is no mortality left within you. So one of the ways we do that is we ask the story guide and the player to devise a number of divine milestones. We have a lot of story guiding advice. The, the book actually starts off with 50 pages of storyteller and story guide um, advice, right? Which is kind of unique for these kinds of books, I think. And you, you get into it and we, we talk about how to guide you through a story and a myth arc that feels suitably mythic and borrows from real world mythologies. Uh, you know, I don't want to invoke Joseph Campbell because I feel like the, the, hero's, the hero's journey is, is kind of reductionist in a lot of ways. And it's definitely a little misogynist. But the concept of the hero's journey isn't necessarily unsound. The idea that you can break down these mythological cycles into discrete events. And if you can break them down into discrete events, you can gamify them because you can work them into your game and your hero's journey. So, you know, lowercase h, lowercase j, your, your hero and their journey. So then we break that down a little bit more and we talk about the milestones you need to hit along the way to becoming a god. And Demigod actually has a failure state in it. Um, if you fail at enough of those deeds and you fail at enough of those milestones or don't do them in a, in a way that co constructively builds towards what you're doing, um, you can get to the very end where you need to shed your mortality one way or another. And many times it is shedding it in a violent death. And if you don't do it right, uh, th there's a failure state and you will not become a god. Your, your your character's journey ends. Holy cow! So it, 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 I'm listening to you talk about this, and it seems like when you create a character in Scion, it, it's with the idea that this character is is going to die or or, or become a god, whether whichever way they achieve it. Um, so you really are working towards an end. So that's when you decide to move into the demigod level. Before that, you you can be a hero as long as you want, and you can be a plateau as long as you want, and also out of game. Yet you can be a demigod as long as you want. You guys can keep playing at the demigod level for years and years and years, and I'm not going to kick down your door and stop you. But on an in-setting level, yes, it is constantly driving you towards that sense of mortality. We, we use a lot of the... Um, I like to say that Scion 
their their home cosmology actually favors the Norse, the Greco-Roman, and the Hindu sense of the world because the native Cyan cosmology is sort of a blend of those three. Um, and everything else gets adapted to be within that framework. Um, but one of the big Greek conceptions of immortality is that it's sort of a divine flame within you. And um, the the idea that ichor, the the divine um, fluid, is actually like very toxic and poisonous to humans. And so when you're a hero, you are more mortal than God. You have you have a sliver of divinity within you. And it makes your life eternally interesting. It attracts trouble, but you can coexist at that level for, until you die a mortal death, and probably, probably you know, not a great one, but possibly after a long life of natural causes, it's it's entirely possible. But when you declare yourself to be a demigod, you internally shift yourself to be more immortal than mortal, and so there's this constant burning drive within you as the flame of your immortality literally sears and cooks your mortal flesh and your mortal side. And you're just being driven onward to accomplish these great deeds because you said you were going to. And there's no backseas from demigod. Once once you declare to fate and the world, I'm going to become a god or die trying, the world just goes, okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so there's no, uh, just kidding, guys. I wasn't going to do that. Yeah, no, no, no. You don't get to step back down to hero. Doesn't happen. Neil, the Kickstarter for this project has already proven to be wildly successful. I, I was looking over the project, and, and it looks like, at least as what you guys have shown, that there are only two remaining stretch goals to be unlocked. Are there other plans? And if so, what are they? And what do you hope to see unlocked? I'm already very pleased by all the stuff that we've unlocked so far. I um, I would like to see some of the other stretch goals come into play. Um, we have some stuff down down the pike. I think by the time this podcast comes out, we should have announced that we were, we're going for some novellas to be funded, and we're going for a couple of other things. You know, I I just wanted to expand the world of Scion a little bit more and get more deeply into the mechanics and expand out a lot of the really interesting stories I think you can tell. More story guiding advice on how to play these sorts of things. The the thing I'm most excited about, and I, I will say this, is the option for solo play and the option for troop play. A lot of times in mythology, you're playing a character and... Or, I'm sorry, a lot of times in mythology, you'll have stories about a character, and then you'll have stories where those characters are along with other demigods. And to Scion, Scion is basically like the journey of the Argonauts, um, from the start of it, because you're adventuring with a bunch of other demigods. But all of the Argonauts, you know, Jason, Hercules, Theseus, uh, they all had... Was Theseus an Argonaut? I don't know. It, I have to keep the entire mythology of the world in my brain, and sometimes it gets mixed up. Anyway, you know, all of those heroes had their own individual stories, and they had their own individual events, and they had their own individual cast of characters. And so what I wanted to do was both... Um, give out extensive blue booking advice on how to run solo games for yourself and how to run solo vignettes that could have a potential story coming out of the end of it and something you could bring back to the table and tell your storyteller, hey, look at this thing I did or look at this and this is cool. And one of the other things I want to do is troop play where you take one scion and, and you spotlight one scion and then they create a cast of characters underneath them and all of the other players play that cast. 
And, you know, this is not something you probably want to do all the time, but if you want to devote a month's worth of sessions or so to, to this concept, if you're playing every week, um, then you can basically spotlight a new scion each time and run through your own little story with your own cast of characters before all your science get back together for the next big adventure. And that was part of the stretch goals, the, the troop thing. Yes. The troop play. Sorry, not troop thing. That was silly. So what about the solo play? I mean, obviously, like you talk about, we talked about, or you talked about the 12 trials of Hercules um, or the 12 strengths of Hercules. What, what does the solo play bring to it? So solo play um, both means uh, play on your own, completely on your own, and playing maybe with a um, uh, just you and another storyteller, like the one-to-one type concept. And those types of games um, that are they're either completely on your own or are one-to-one with a storyteller where it's just you, they have a different vibe and they have a different feel than the rest of uh, the games are because most games are built towards having a group of people playing. So what I want to do is provide actual systemic advice and story guiding advice for those types of games and how to incorporate them into a larger Scion Chronicle. Uh, And I find that sort of thing is especially good, especially if, say, one player can't make it for a game. You know, uh, sometimes if you're in the middle of something really important, or you're in the middle of something, you might be like, oh, well, I have to delay a week. And every, every, every adult knows that feeling of, oh, I just can't play this week, and working a bunch of adult schedules to get in line and in sync with one another. It's, it's difficult. Um, and so what solo play and what the troop level play and the one-to-one type playing is meant to do is meant to remove some of that scheduling conflict from there so you can still game and you can, can still contribute to the larger story, even if all the characters and all the players aren't there at once. That's a great option to have. Yeah. Well, Neil, I have taken up a lot of your time this morning, and I'm sure you have a lot of things to get done. But So we'll go ahead and wrap this up. But before we do, one of the things that I love to do with our writers that come on our show is have them give us an elevator pitch of why people should be playing this game. Okay. Scion takes real-world mythologies and real-world mythological concepts and puts them in the modern day in order to deconstruct and reconstruct them and do so uh, through a lens of high octane action adventure. We're talking huge explosions. We're talking CGI monsters. We're talking the, the works. And we're also talking about a game that examines celebrity and examines the idea of becoming an actual religious figure, which is something demigods also do because they, they become a, a huge part of world religions just by being demigods. Uh, so what is it like to be a living demigod and be worshipped, literally be worshipped? So I think a lot of games out there talk about doing you know mythological level play or they talk about doing epic, epic level play. And that's, you know, that's cool. I'm not deriding them at all. But when you want to talk about actual myth and actual epics, you, you look at Scion because we are the only game that does it. Scion Demigod is currently available on Kickstarter. It has about 18 days to go at the time of this recording. I highly recommend if this is a game that you're interested in that you go and check it out. Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on.